Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff. Are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ever been ringside and got blood on you? Oh, all the time. This is the Sports Illustrated Boxing Podcast. Anthony Joshua is a composed and ferocious finisher. Watch this. Andy Ruiz is the heavyweight champion. Hosted by SI's Chris Mannix. That was really embarrassing. That was my moment. Now with interviews, analysis, and everything going on in the world of boxing. When you have talent, you are given another chance. Here's Chris Mannix. All right, Keith Eidek is here, senior writer with BoxingScene.com. He is back in the familiar surroundings of Mohegan Sun. Keith, I swear to God, it seems like every time I talk to you, you're in the exact same place, a hotel room at Mohegan Sun. Moving lamps around to adjust the lighting, you know, fun stuff. That's fam- It's familiar territory for you. Uh, As I was in this, literally in the same room that I was in the last time we spoke. <laughs> well... You should at least get like you know comp meals and things what, like what that. Are they, like, what do they have... call them? Wapum points or something like that? <laughs> I don't. I don't. Know. I haven't uh, been to Mohegan Sun in a while. I haven't been down there in a while. I haven't, I haven't hopped the bus to uh, to Mohegan Sun <laughs> for that matter. In, in get you on a bus. To, get you in a bus to Atlantic City. You know. <laughs> All right, you're down there for the Adrian Broner fight this weekend. I want to talk about that. We also have Oscar Valdez and Miguel Burchelt this weekend. Huge fight for top rank over on ESPN. Uh, also had some interesting things this past weekend I want to get to, but I first want to get your take, Keith. Uh, just recently, as we record this on Wednesday afternoon, it was announced by the IBF that they were uh, suspending or pausing or delaying, whatever word you want to choose, the purse bid for Teofimo Lopez versus George Campos. The reason wasn't because a deal had been struck. It was because there's a snowstorm headed for New Jersey and they apparently didn't want to go through with it in the snowstorm. Now, I don't really understand why that's relevant. I mean, it's going to be a virtual purse bid anyway, so I don't know why you need well, that. You, but I, Go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you, Chris. You actually can go to it. You can, but you don't have to, right? Like, like No, you don't, you don't have to. So I guess I don't know if there's some legality involved or whatever, but there is a – I live in New Jersey, obviously, and while I'm away from home now, I've been getting updates on my phone all day from my townhouse development and everything about – moving snow and all kinds of stuff. So, so there is a pretty big storm coming tomorrow. It's, you know, there might be a state of emergency just to keep people off the roads and everything. So I think being that you're able to, um, 
to go to the, I think they had to do it legally, just postpone it. It's only been postponed until Tuesday. It's not like it's been postponed for a couple of weeks or anything. Um, so uh, Top Rank might have submitted its bid in person from what I was told. So yeah, yeah graphically well, speaking. I, mean, I, I, guess, I, guess either, I guess either way, my point is like, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't understand all the legalities of it, but it strikes me as the kind of thing that could be done virtually if you want to. But that that's neither here nor there. My, my greater point is that I'm a little bit disappointed because I was anticipating this purse bid. Like, I don't generally care about purse bids and how they play out, but this, Keith, felt like one of the more interesting purse bids that we've had come up in a while. I mean, Teofimo Lopez is represented by Top Rank. Top Rank wants to put on this fight, but could not come to a deal with Teofimo over the money. So it goes to purse bid. And at purse bid, there are several parties that I've been told are interested in bidding on this fight. You have Lou DiBella there, who could align himself with Eddie Hearn and the DAZN money as the promoter of George Cambosis and make a bid uh, to have that fight land on DAZN. Uh, Top Rank, of course, was going to make a bid of its own to have the fight on ESPN. I had also been told that Triller could be in the mix. Triller's been making some moves to get deeper into boxing, MTK Global, could they get into the mix as a potential bidder? There's just a lot of names, Keith, flying around out there about uh, potential bidders for the Lopez-Cambosis fights. I guess as we now have a few more days to process all this, I mean, what are you expecting to happen at this purse bid? Are you, expe- are, are you as interested in it as I am? Well, I'm interested in it in the sense, Chris, that if top rank does not win the bid, well, I'll say this. You can fast forward your enthusiasm to Tuesday because I don't think we're going to have an agreement before then. So, you know, it'll be a few days later, but I do think it will go to purse bid. I think, you know, top rank has uh, drawn its line in the sand, so to speak, with Tiafimo Lopez. I don't know that's necessarily the, the best thing for them to do or the smartest thing for them to do in the long term. Uh, but they want to pay him what his contract minimum is, which is $1.25 million for a title defense that was agreed upon before he beat uh, Vasily Lomachenko, so he's contractually bound to that. Uh, he thinks the fight is worth more than that. His his manager, David McWhorter, and and others think the fight is worth more than that. They think Tiafimo Lopez is worth, worth more than that, particularly because he took short money. Now, I understand that he was paid a lot of money to fight Vasily Lomachenko, but not in comparison to what other fighters have been paid on other platforms to take much lower risks than he took in that fight. So he took the fight for short money. He went and fought arguably the best pound-for-pound fighter in the world. He wasn't number one on my list, but certainly a top three guy, and beat him. Now he wants to be paid accordingly, and I completely understand that from Tiafimo Lopez's perspective. I see it from Top Rank's perspective to some degree as well. They don't think a fight with George Cambosis is a big fight. Bob Arum flat out told me last week, without hesitation, this is not a big fight. That's pretty rare that you would say that about one. Now, Bob has made a habit more recently of going after his bigger top fighters, Terrence Crawford, now Tiafimo Lopez. He wasn't as critical of Tiafimo Lopez as he was of Terrence Crawford, but uh, they're sending a message here, Chris. And the message is, we think you're worth X, and particularly in a fight like this. He's going to go out and test the market. Will MTK win the bid? Will DAZN through Eddie Hearn win the bid? Um yeah, Triller. I, I, I mean, what are they? What are they going to put on the undercard of Jake Paul? I mean, what are they doing with this fight exactly? I mean, 
what what purpose does it serve for them to look they they have the money so they can do what they want but i just don't what are they getting out of it i mean because the, the one thing to keep in mind for most people from the outside looking in if you win the rights to promote this fight or to televise or to stream it it's a one and done you don't have any contractual rights to Tiafimo Lopez thereafter. And I don't think George Cambosis is going to win the fight. So it's kind of irrelevant what his contractual status is in this. I mean, he's a good fighter. I'm not trying to put down George Cambosis, but he'd be a huge underdog against Tiafimo Lopez. And I think he will lose the fight. Um, you know, another factor in this, Chris, is that George Cambosis wants to be paid. You know, he wants to be compensated well too, not nearly as much as Tiafimo Lopez, but he's not looking to come in and make a hundred grand to fight for the title. So him wanting what he wants is complicating it also and, you know, kind of making this a situation where they're going to test the market and see, let the market dictate what the fight is worth. And I think that's what we'll find out on Tuesday, assuming we don't get any more snow in New Jersey. Yeah, I guess I'm curious to see what the market does say it's worth and what is it worth to Eddie Hearn, who would also have to factor in not pissing off top rank as he's trying to close a deal to have Tyson Fury face Anthony Joshua, which is a variable in all this. But he also wants to put, you know, good fights and good fighters on the platform. And Teofimo Lopez is one of the top fighters in the world. I, with, we need to go too deep in the weeds on it, but I just, uh, I'm very interested to see how that purse bid plays out and what comes from it. Can I say just one other yeah. thing on this, Chris? Because look, it, it will, if let's just say DAZN gives Eddie Hearn the financial wherewithal to win the bid and you bring the fight to DAZN, that's a short-term win for DAZN, for sure. And from a public perception standpoint, it will look like they took Tiafimo Lopez away from top rank in ESPN, at least for one fight. But what is the end game there? Because they don't, they're not going to have him beyond that fight. And as we have agreed, I think most people would agree, this is not a quote-unquote big fight. So how many eyeballs are you going to draw to DAZN? Unlike maybe the Jose Ramirez-Maurice Hooker fight, which was considered maybe a, was considered a more competitive fight, it was a title unification fight, and maybe there was more justification for doing it. But what return would you get on your investment if you're DAZN, in this case, to bring Tiafimo Lopez there for one fight, particularly when he's such a huge favorite in that fight? Yeah, and like when you are talking about the Ramirez-Hooker fight, you know, DAZN and Eddie had Hooker. So if Hooker won, and, and at that time, there was a decent chance he would have. I mean, it was a coin flip type of fight going in you would have the unified 140-pound champion. Uh, I, I guess you would have Cambosis, you know, who is aligned with Lou DiBella um, in the fold if he would win. But as you said, it's, it's you know, the odds, I don't know if they're out yet, but I would assume Lopez is a heavy favorite there. So it's, it's, it is a short-term win without the potential for long-term rewards uh, for DAZN. Um, all right, let's talk about last weekend uh, first, where Jojo Diaz, uh, the now former 130-pound champion, he lost his title on the scale coming in Three and a half pounds over. That's not a little bit over. That's a lot over uh, on fight night. He winds up walking away with a draw against Shavkat Rakimov. Um, a competitive fight early, I guess. Uh, Shavkat uh, Rakimov won the middle rounds, I thought. And then Diaz closed the show pretty strong and salvaged a draw. I got to tell you, Keith, like, I, you know, unless Diaz, you know, without falling down, you know, the stairs after the fight and blowing out his ACL, he could not have had a worse weekend. I mean, losing his title, uh, getting a draw against a, a relatively unknown opponent. And now he's kind of out there in no man's land. You've got Rakimov being ordered to face the number one contender for the IBF title. Diaz is going to have to work his way back up the ranks, assuming he goes back to 130. 
Um, what did you think of the fight? And what did you think of the weekend for Jojo Diaz? You know, and, and let's not forget, Chris, he also paid a $100,000 fine out of his purse. That's pretty substantial. It was a five hundred thousand. And I think it was. I think it was. I think it was more than that too. I think I'm. I know he paid. There was a little bit more money going to Rockemoff at the end too, and then there was some managerial stuff. Again, not to get too deep in the weeds, but I mean, he lost a lot of money um, in in not making the 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 weight this weekend. Yeah, and and then he lost all of his leverage, as you said, Chris, because when you have one of those titles, no matter what people think of there being four divisions and. Uh, four champions in each division and, you know, sometimes eight by the time the WBA is done with its nonsense. <laughs> um, but, but those titles are valuable. And, and in Jojo Diaz's case, you know, he was in position here if he won this fight or even if he came away with a majority draw and retained his title, which wound up happening as the fight unfolded, uh, you know, he's in position to fight the winner of the Jamel Herring, Carl Frampton fight or the, the fight this weekend, which is an excellent, excellent fight between Miguel Burchelt and uh, Oscar Valdez. He's in position to fight the winners of those fights next. You know, I personally would like to see Tevin Farmer have gotten his rematch, but but point being is Jojo Diaz was in prime position to make some real money in a title unification fight. And look, I understand what he's saying. He just got to a point where he was working out in his hotel room uh, where he couldn't get the weight off in a sauna and, and in all the other ways that he usually does. The only thing I'd say is a, so many of the fighters uh, here at Mohegan Sun, it's happened multiple times. And frankly, I don't think there'll be a lot of people who'd be surprised if there's an issue at the Adrian Broner weigh-in on Friday here. You know, it's happened multiple times. So I don't know why the fighters are so surprised when they get to fight week at a place and then don't have access to the facilities that they usually use to lose weight. I don't know why you wouldn't be more prepared for that going in. Um, so I don't, and, and, but Jojo Diaz said at a certain point, I just knew this weight was not coming off and I had to stop trying to lose it because it was going to become dangerous to me. And it was going to deplete me so much that not only would I be stripped of my title at the scale, I would go into the fight, not nearly a hundred percent physically, and then risk losing the fight as well. Because if there's one thing that you could say, Chris, you were ringside, you saw Jojo Diaz, look, you know, he had some trouble in the middle rounds. I thought he lost a lot of the middle rounds of the fight, but then rallied in the, in the, you know, championship rounds, maybe eight, nine, 10, you know, 10, 11, 12, the championship rounds, he did very well. Um, but his conditioning for a guy who came in three and a half pounds overweight wasn't all that much of an issue. He was able to throw punches. He was able to win rounds late in the fight. So it wasn't like he was not only was he overweight, but he, but his, his, uh, wind was not there either. I mean, he was able to close the show in, in a strong way, like a champion. The unfortunate thing for Jojo Diaz, who's a really nice kid. I mean, you really, you see a guy go through all the things and he's been through some mental health issues and everything. And he's been very vocal about that. You see a guy go through those kinds of things and you want to see him do well and succeed for his family. But he put himself in a position here where if you're golden boy, what do you yeah, he's still a valuable commodity because he's a talented guy who still only has one loss to Gary Russell on his record. But what, what are you? How are you supposed to feel about this if you're Golden Boy? He had he didn't come in on weight. He didn't win the fight. I mean, it's a tough spot to be in. Yeah, and he's going to have to rebuild a little bit. But I think there's a, a pathway to rebuild at least in that IBF lane relatively quickly. We know Rakimov is going to. Uh, fight for the 130-pound title at some point against the kid from Japan. Um, you're going to have, you know, potentially Diaz out there. Uh, 
What is I forgot his name already from what is his uh, No, but, uh, I'm not laughing about his name. No, Agawa is Agawa. How, right. how is he fight again? I don't want to make the whole podcast about Tevin Farmer, <laughs> but Tevin Farmer fought Agawa in I don't know, it was three years ago or whatever, and it was 2017, a yeah. Horrendous decision. You know, Tevin Farmer won the fight, got screwed. Then Agawa tests positive for a PED after that. Tevin Farmer loses a close to now he lost to Jojo Diaz, but he had a rematch clause, an immediate rematch clause. How is Agawa ranked ahead of him and getting a title shot before Tevin Farmer, who he cheated against three years ago? <laughs> And and who had an immediate well, what is what is going on? I mean, even for boxing, this IBF thing that's happening right here with this whole and they're supposed to be above the fray now. But this is Keith, this this is you know this. This is what like this is the biggest flaw with the IBF, how they rank people. Like they follow their rules mostly with everything else, but how they rank people is bizarre. Like you go back to Darvinchenko, continuing to rank Darvinchenko 160 over and over again. Until, you know, you finally couldn't do it anymore. Like, they have some weird, weird rankings in the IBF. And and the top two spots in the rankings are open. Why yeah. is Tevin Farmer ranked sixth? It doesn't make any sense. Tevin I Farmer should be ranked first. And, that, and I, now, not, not, they're not finished here, Chris. They didn't just order the title fight between... Now, I have no problem with Rockamoff getting another title shot. He fought a guy right. who was, you know, grossly overweight, and it was a competitive fight. Could have gone either, you know... Draw was probably fair, but Rock, rock him off, Keith. Rock him off doesn't catch COVID nineteen a month ago. Um, he probably wins that fight. It, it just felt to me watching that, you know, he was he didn't have the condition he probably would have if he didn't have to take that time off or had to deal with COVID. And he doesn't have a lot of experience in twelve round fights, so you don't know. Right. Maybe I don't know how he would react in a ordinarily if he didn't have COVID either. But but point being, he deserves the title. I have no problem with him getting the title shot. But why is he fighting Agawa in, in the title fight? And not Tevin, it would have made much more sense for him to fight Tevin Farmer. The problem, as you said, Chris, is they adhere strictly to their rankings, which in some, which in one way is a good thing, but the rankings are so wacky that you, that you come, you come up, they ought, they're not finished because they order today, they, or was yesterday actually, but it, but they sent out the letter today. They also ordered an eliminator between uh, the South African fighter that, Rockamoff knocked out to become the mandatory for Jojo Diaz and the fourth ranked fighter. So, so what is Tevin Farmer left to think here? Who paid, by the way, all of these sanctioning fees for multiple title defenses. And it seems like I'm not saying the IBF has anything against Tevin Farmer, but you wouldn't know that if you looked at this from the outside looking in. Yeah. Well, one avenue I can see for Tevin Farmer, though, is let's say Rockamoff you know, beats Agawa and gets that IBF title in the next three or four months. I'd like to see the rematch between Tevin and Jojo. I think there's still a market for that. You've got both these guys kind of aligned politically enough that you could make that fight happen. There'd be a lot of trash talk going into it. I think there'd be decent business there. And then, I mean, I could easily see Rakimov taking an optional defense against the winner of that fight, right? I mean, that's probably the most money for him, you know, in in that position. And if you're Rakimov, you want to make some money at this stage of your career. So I, I'm with you. I would have not put Tevin Farmer sixth or seventh or whatever he was in those IBF rankings, but I, I can see if he can beat JoJo in a rematch, if that's the fight they go to next, which I, I can't see another fight for JoJo Diaz. I mean, can you? Like, I don't see any other kind of marketable fight for him that he can get in the next six months. 
not in the next six months, Chris, but what I will say that, that bears watching is, you know, uh, top Bob Arum and Oscar De La Hoya have done a lot of work to repair their relationship. As you well know, they're looking to do some more business together and top rank has 130 pound champions. They also have 130 pound contenders that they need to satisfy as well. Namely mm-hmm. Shakur Steve, Shakur Stevenson, of course, at 130 pounds, but, uh, but they do have champions. And if they're willing to do some business together, maybe uh, Jojo Diaz gets a title opportunity against one of top ranks champions, you know, Again, not within the next six months. So maybe to your point, maybe one of those fights makes more sense for him in the short term because it'll be available a lot faster. But he he might have more. Look, I'll say this. Jojo Diaz probably has more options than maybe he deserves after what happened Friday at the scale. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I do think top rank's probably going to you know go in-house with those 130-pound matchups for the rest of this year, most likely. Uh, because of the guys they have to satisfy. Shakur, Andrew Cancio is kind of in that mix as well. Um, so I think JoJo, he should be focused on that IBF title. Like fight Tevin Farmer, see if he can get an opportunity, and then going to 2022 with the same game plan you had coming into this fight to get those uh, title unifications. Uh, on the undercard, go oh, ahead. Do you get some? No, I was going to say, JoJo Diaz is now ranked 12th by the IBF. So <laughs> How does, okay, all right. Shout out to the IBF. I mean, we're just picking names out of a hat and uh, throwing them in your IBF rankings. Uh, let's talk about the co-main, which was, uh, you know, I don't want to call it a coming out party for Brian Castagna because that already happened against Arislandi Lara. But I mean, what a performance by Castagna. Say what you want about Teixeira, but Teixeira stepped in a year plus ago and, you know, came back and fought one of the toughest fights, it, probably the toughest fight of his career in outpointing uh, Carlos Adamas. Uh, he was a legitimate title holder. He had a good camp, he told me, during the week. And Castagna went out there and beat him pillar to post. Like, just dominate him uh, in that fight. I gave one round to Patrick Teixeira. One of the judges had it, a shutout. Uh, you've seen Castagna up close a few times. Uh, what did you make of his performance? And, you know, how real is he in a matchup with, say, Jermel Charlo at 154? Well, I'll say this. I think, besides Brian Castagno, I think Jermel Charlo was the biggest winner on Saturday night because... If Patrick Teixeira, who was a big underdog, even though he was the champion going into the fight, had he won, it would have been much more difficult for Jamel Charlo to get him into the ring because it would have required Al Heyman and Golden Boy to do business, and that probably was not going to happen. And I thought, Keith, and Keith, and I thought that Teixeira, if he had won, I thought Golden Boy was angling for Terrence Crawford. I thought they were going to go that direction. Absolutely. And, and you couldn't blame them for that because Teixeira would make more money to fight Terrence Crawford than he would make to fight Jamel Charlo. Um, and, and it would give top rank something for, for lack of better words, something for Terrence Crawford to do, you know, so, 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 you know, it probably would have happened that way. Um, but good for Jamel Charlo, who's who does want to fully unify the titles and he really wants this opportunity. Brian Castaño, uh, a really good fighter. You know, he's an interesting fighter, Chris, because he's a shorter 154 pounder. He's not a massive puncher, but he's a really tough guy. He never stops coming forward. He throws a lot of punches. He's really tough, but he's there to be hit. And, and if you fight Jermel Charlo, he's going to hit you. So uh, that's a tough matchup for Brian Castaño. But I think more than anything from Castaño and the perspective of his uh, handlers, he'll finally be rewarded for, uh, for being a world champion because his last run, now he was a secondary world champion with the WBO, but he was completely wronged by the WBO. Uh, WBA. WBA, right? Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry, WBA. Yeah. My apologies to the WBO. I'm, I'll get to them eventually, I'm sure. But, um, but uh, you know, he 
he had the secondary WBA title and whatever you think happened in the Eras Landy Lara fight, whether you think he won, I yeah, I could see Castaño winning that fight. It was a very competitive fight, but I thought Castaño edged it. Nevertheless, they were supposed to fight in an immediate rematch. Uh, Michael Soro, who, you know, a French fighter who Castaño had already beaten, uh, was his mandatory at the time. And the short version of it is, is they had an agreement with Harris Landy Lara. They thought for an immediate rematch in 2019. Um, Soro was on board with that. And then his, I don't know, his, his, his promoters changed lawyers or something. And they changed, they completely changed their opinion of it. They no longer wanted to let the mandatory fight go forward. And Castaño was stripped because he refused to go back to France to fight Soro. Now he had beaten Soro in France by uh, split decision, but it had, taken uh, Soros promoters, I believe it was 10 months to pay Brian Castaño's purse and they paid it in installments. And it was that same promotional group that wanted control of the fight. So Castaño said, look, I'm not getting involved with this again. And, and then he was stripped of the title. So it's unfortunate. And, and then he was, you know, he, he had only fought once since then before Saturday night. So, uh, so good for him to be, to be in this position, hardworking guy. He's still undefeated. And now he's a world champion for the second time, technically. And hopefully he'll be able to cash in on these opportunities. He's 31 years old. Uh, like I said, seems like a very good guy, hard worker. And he'll, he'll bring the fight to Charlo. That might be to his detriment, but he'll bring the fight to Charlo. And I hope that that's a fight we see later this year. Yeah, I was really impressed with Castaño, especially the pressure that he put on. I, I thought he might have had some conditioning issues coming into the fight. Um, just based on what I'd seen and heard on Friday, but I saw none of that in the ring. I mean, he was just nonstop pressure. He never gave Patrick Teixeira a chance to really turn the tide. There was a round or two that Teixeira applied pressure of his own, but you know, Castaño came back after that and continued to kind of batter Teixeira pillar to post. So uh, really impressive win by Castaño. And yeah, you're right. He is there to be hit. And Jamel Charlo is a much bigger hitter than Patrick Teixeira is. But if Charlo's not in great shape, and if he doesn't time him right, you know, he can wind up down pretty big on the scorecards and looking for a home run shot in those later rounds. That's how effective I thought Castaño was with, with how he was fighting. But yeah, it sets up a good fight. I mean, Charlo is looking for a big fight at 154. Uh, Castaño's not a huge name, but undisputed 154-pound champion, that's a feather in the cap of either guy um, in that weight class. So I'm, yeah, I'm hoping that... And in case either of us didn't mention this, Chris, sorry to interrupt you, but um, Castagna was affiliated with Al Heyman, so that's right. why, and PBC, which is why that fight is so easy to make. Yeah, no question. All right, uh, let's move on to this weekend, and let's start at the fight that you were going to be ringside for. That's uh, Adrian Broner, his return to the ring after a two-year layoff. That comes against Giovanni Santiago, a little-known but undefeated uh, fighter. You mentioned earlier, Keith, the weight. Um I don't know what weight this is at right now. I haven't, I'm not entirely clear what weight this is going to be fought at. I mean, I've heard from different people it's at 140. I've also heard from others that it's basically at Broner weight. Like whatever weight Broner comes in, that's what weight this fight is going to be at. Do you have any understanding of where that weight is going to be? What's in the contract is that it's a 140 pound fight. Mm. Whether, whether those contracts will exist by Friday morning is anyone's guess. Um, That's kind of how I had heard it. That's kind of how I had heard it. It, it is 140 pounds. That is supposed to be the contract. I wish I had my quotes in front of me, Chris, uh, from last week, but I'll just paraphrase what Adrian Broner told me on the phone um, 
I believe it was like five or six days ago. I said, well, what is the contract weight? Again, I'm paraphrasing. I don't care. That doesn't matter to me. That Those were two of the sentences for sure. So <laughs> I don't know what to say to that exactly because it obviously has to matter to you because you have to make that weight. Or you know that you can get to fight week. And what is Giovanni Santiago going to do? Ah, I'm going home. No, he's never made this kind. He's not making a fortune, but he's never made this kind of money for a fight. It's the biggest fight of his career. It's the biggest opportunity of his career. Now, look, Broner looks like he's in fantastic shape. I've seen you know all these photos on Instagram and everything. He and he said he lost more than thirty five pounds. So he was a when he got to camp, he was a cruiserweight. Um, that's a lot of weight to lose in twelve or thirteen weeks. Uh, but I could see him getting into this Mohegan Sun environment, and again not being used to not having the sauna or whatever these guys use to, to, to cut weight in the final days before they have to weigh in and then saying, Oh man, this is not happening. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to make this way. I'm not say, I'm not predicting it, but what I will say is that Adrian Broner has done this before. If you remember when he fought Adrian Granados four years ago, that started out, I, I believe the initial contract weight was 142. And then I believe at some point during camp, they might have moved it to 144 because Granados felt he was a 40-pounder, not a welterweight, and did not want to fight Broner at 147 pounds, felt he'd be giving up too much size and too many advantages, um, although he did fight at welterweight after that. Uh, but then it was changed to 147 pounds. So some, I don't remember if it was a fight week or the week before, but Broner just basically said, I'm not even going to try to get down to what the contract weight is, and we're just going to fight, as you said, Chris, at Broner weight. Um so I don't know. I mean, I'm fully expecting to to deal with some more weigh-in drama on uh, on Friday. I would not be surprised at all. Um, and and the fact that people are not telling you, not you specifically, but all of us, they're kind of yeah. being coy about what the weight is. Now I do know that in in Giovanni Santiago's contract, it says that the weight is 140 pounds. What it says on on Adrian Broner's contract and in his mind. Who knows? But it's it's. I think we could have an issue here on on Friday. But the but the fight will move forward. It's not a title fight, uh, right? Or why, you know, so it really doesn't make a difference. They, they can. Kind of I, I'm 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 predicting two things happen uh, for this fight. One is it's not contested 140 pounds, and the other is that it happens. Like to your point, yeah. Santiago does not have. He's not going to walk away from this fight over a few pounds. He's coming in for the payday. Uh, and he's going to get it one way or the other. So those are the two things I'm sure of. What I'm not sure of, though, Keith, is what we're going to see from Broner in this fight and what we're going to see from Broner in 2021 and beyond. You've followed the same storylines as I have. We both talked to Broner uh, this week. Uh, he's saying all the right things about kind of how he's changing and more dedicated and all that stuff. We've heard that before, though, from Adrian Broner. Are you buying kind of what he's trying to sell uh, in terms of his return to boxing? No. I mean, who's buying it at this point, Chris? It's the same story. It's the same story. I'm going to take it seriously. And one, I, I just want to preface this by saying, I understand that he has some, has battled some serious mental health issues. And as a human being, you want to be sympathetic toward that, right? But, you know, and, and he's, I don't know. He's got some alcohol issues and th he's got some demons. I get it. And, and you don't want to uh, just be cavalier about that and just say it doesn't matter. It does matter. But how many times is this guy going to be in this position and tell you the same story 
it's the same story. You could go back five years, the story's the same. And then a year later, it's the same. And then two years later, it's the same. Then he doesn't fight for two years. And now it's the same. I'm going to, I'm taking training camp seriously. And I'm, uh, and I'm not going to do this anymore. And I'm not going to party anymore. And I'm not going to do this. And, and I'm going to let my hands go. We will be here on Saturday night. I promise you this. We, well, I will be here on Saturday night. You'll be watching it somewhere. And he will say, <laughs> he will give you several reasons why he did not perform the way that he told us that he would perform or that he was expected to perform or that his potential once upon a time dictated that he, you know, that he, or, or suggested that he might still be performing at 31 years old because he's not old. He's not old in box in the boxing sense. I mean, he still should be in his physical prime, but he has done a lot of uh, he's abused his body outside of the ring, you know, the drinking and, uh, you know, gaining massive amounts of weight in between fights and everything. It's not healthy for a guy to come down from cruiserweight and fight at, well, probably welterweight, but supposed to be junior welterweight. That's not healthy for you to continually do. And, you know, he's, you know, he parties a lot and all that kind of stuff that does catch up to you. So he's not like at 31, he's certainly not what Floyd Mayweather was at 31 physically, or Bernard Hopkins might've been at 41 even because he preserved himself so well. So I I just, the one, the thing that's most interesting to me, Chris, as we go into this is when, does the public tap out, so to speak, on Broner? <laughs> I completely understand why he's in a main event on Showtime. Every time they put him on, and, and the numbers bear this out, right? I mean, there's no disputing this. When they put him on, more people watch than when they put other fighters on Showtime. It's, it's proven, you know? So I understand going back to him in his first fight since Manny Pacquiao, going back and bringing him, and you're, you're not going to put him in with, you know, with a killer in his first fight. I mean, you know, the guy's undefeated, but Santiago's never fought anyone at this level. Um, you know, so he's supposed to win this fight. I'll say that I thought the odds would be a little more lopsided. He's, and I say only, but he's only a nine to one favorite in this fight. I would have thought it would have, he would have been a 20 to one favorite or 25 to one favorite maybe, but um, so he's a nine to one favorite. He's expected to win, but look, Chris, let me ask you a question. When is the last time, when is the last time that Adrian Broner convincingly won a fight and you came away from that fight saying that, you know, he did what he was supposed to be, looked good, you know, blah, blah, blah. How long ago do you think that was? Now you probably- I would probably, I don't know the date on it, but when did he beat Vincente Escobedo? Like, we, we back in like well, 2009. I was, I, I, was, I was giving him a, a lot more credit than that, but. Uh, but when he beat Ashley Theophane, who was older at the time, and I get it. I'm not, I'm not saying he was the best opponent that Broner's ever fought. But right. when he beat him in April of 2016, he stopped him in the ninth round. There was no questions asked about it. It was a definitive win for him. But since then, he, he doesn't have a convincing, impressive win since then. His only win since then is the fight against Granados that a lot of people thought that he lost. Certainly one of the judges thought he lost. He lost 97-93 on one of the cards. It was a close fight. It could have gone either way. I'm not saying Granados clearly won, but it was a close fight. So nearly five years have passed since Adrian Broner really won a fight, be it, albeit against an older, you know, former contender in Theophane. But so why, why, why is so much still made of Adrian? It's, it's, it's fascinating. And, and it's, and he is still relevant and polarizing, but Why? I mean, he has tapped into the urban market in ways that no fighter has since Floyd Mayweather. And I'm not saying he's on the level of Floyd Mayweather, but 
he's tapped into those fans. Like, he has attracted a lot of the same fans that Mayweather did. And I'll be interested to see what the ratings are for this one, Keith. I mean, he's now two years removed, two plus years removed from being in the ring. He's had so many legal issues and outside the ring issues. Will that make an impact? He's facing an opponent that, as you said, not considered on his level. I'll be interested what the ratings are after this one, but it wouldn't surprise me at all to see him do a good number on Showtime because I don't, I, I don't think his fans are ready to tap out yet. I think there's still some faith that there's something left in Adrian Broder. Now, to move it forward a little bit, I, look, I think he beats Santiago one way or the other, whether he stops him or beats him by decision. He, he's going to get another big fight at some point, whether it's on Showtime or on pay-per-view, probably on Showtime. I don't think he's a pay-per-view fighter at this point. But, like, what is that? What do you think PBC has him ticketed for, you know, for the rest of this year? Do you think, or what is the plan for Adrian Broner for the rest of this year? Well, he wants to fight three times, and he needs to fight three times based on his financial situation and, as you mentioned, some of the legal things he's involved in. I mean, he owes money. I mean, there's no two ways about it. He needs to be an active fighter. He needs he needs to win these fights and then get back in the gym and have another fight scheduled relatively soon. Uh, what types of fights those will be, I don't know, because I don't know if he does not seem interested in fighting Regis Prograde next. I'll say that. Um, the, he, that probably his, wouldn't go well for him. That probably wouldn't go well for him. And I think maybe he knows that. You know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, Prograde's still in the prime of his career also and, uh, and has wanted that fight and called for that fight for three years or so and has been very vocal about it recently. Um, but that would have to be a pay to get Broner into the, uh, it's tricky for Al Heyman in, in this sense. You have to get, you have to pay Broner accordingly if he's going to get in there. Just let's use Prograde as an example. Is that a pay-per-view fight? It would it would have to be a pay-per-view fight based on the salary structures as the purse structures of the two fighters. But is that a fight that does well on pay-per-view? I don't, I don't see any evidence of that. I mean, Regis Progre has never headlined a pay-per-view event. Uh, Adrian Broner has one time, and he was the B, clearly the B-side against Manny Pacquiao. So, um, so I don't know. Is he a pay-per-view? If he's a pay-per-view fighter, who's he fighting? Like, what fights are there available to him? particularly if he's going to stay somewhere around 140 pounds, what are the pay-per-view fights that are available to him that will resonate with the public to the degree that it'll make a lot of money and make business sense to pay him and the opponent what they're going to want to make? Because Keith Thurman has been mentioned to me as a potential, even though that would require him to go up to 147 pounds. They have this little rivalry and blah, blah, blah. Is that a pay-per-view fight? I I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying they won't make it a pay-per-view fight just because, but but should it be a pay-per-view fight? I don't think so. No, I don't. No, that's another. Look, Keith Thurman's done some good numbers on CBS, but you know his pay-per-view experience has been as the B-side to Manny Pacquiao. So, and he's coming off a massive layoff uh, in and of himself. I mean, he's been off since July of 2019, and who knows when we'll see him back in the ring? I don't know. It's difficult. I mean, I, I think. More likely than not, it's another low-level opponent for Broner if he wants to stay active in 2020, you know, maybe or 2021. Showtime may put up the money for it because he does do, especially if he does a good rating in this one. I'm sure Showtime will want to be back in the Broner business, but I mean, you're right. I mean, uh, you think about the financials of it; it's difficult to to make a fight for Adrian Broner that's not on pay-per-view, especially if I mean we're talking like 10 million dollars, like between the two fighters, you know, to get them in the ring, and you can't. I mean, I guess you can if you wanted to, but it's tough to do fights like that on premium cable at this point. So 
we'll see what happens with Broner. But uh, I'll be interested to see how he looks uh, on uh, on Saturday. But I'm like, I'm with you. I have very low expectations for Adrian Broner as his career goes forward. To pivot from that, I have high expectations, Keith, for what we're going to see on ESPN this weekend, where you have Miguel Burchelt and Oscar Valdez fighting for Burchelt's 130-pound title. Valdez, of course, a former 126-pound champion. Uh, this is going to be an all-out war. It just is. I mean, these are two guys that, you know, in the case of Burchelt, big, strong puncher. Uh, Valdez is a warrior in the ring, and he showed that many occasions, 126 pounds. I, you know, I probably favor Burchelt in this fight because I think Burchelt might, Burchelt might be the number one guy at 130 pounds, but he's going to have to earn it against a guy like Valdez. These two guys, I don't see them taking too many steps backward, Keith. How do you see this fight playing out? Yeah, I think you're right about that, Chris. And I favor Burchelt also, but I do think that Oscar Valdez is a very live underdog in this fight. I think the odds are about a little more than three to one or so. But I really liked what I saw from Oscar Valdez against Jason Velez in his last fight. And I understand that Jason Velez is not nearly on the level of Miguel Burchelt, but he had never been knocked out before. And I, I thought that Valdez coming off terrible performance in his previous fight against Adam Lopez, who was a late replacement for his opponent, who was grossly overweight. Um, he looked very bad. And that was his first 130 pound fight. And he did not look good in that fight at all. Then he told me something interesting, Chris. Um, I don't think the story is posted on the, on boxing scene yet, but he told me something interesting about how he had an awful training camp, maybe his worst training camp that he's ever had going into the Velez fight. And he felt so bad physically going into that fight that he was actually nervous going into that fight against Velez, who had six losses. You don't hear that from guys. You hear guys make tons of excuses about training problems after they lose. You almost never hear that about from a guy who won a fight, especially the way that he won. He knocked Velez down three times. He stopped him in the 10th round, became the first guy to stop him. And I thought before that, um, he didn't do it in a reckless way. He fought the way that Eddie Reynoso has been training him to fight. He was a disciplined fighter that night. He was more of a tactician than a brawler. He moved his head. He was pretty good defensively. Still got caught with some shots just instinctually because he likes to bang it out sometimes uh, that he that he better be careful against Burchelt and not take those types of punches on the inside against him. But um, but I thought he performed really well in the, in the um, Velez fight. And it kind of encourages me a little more that this will be a more competitive fight then some people see it, and certainly maybe the way that I saw it after he fought Adam Lopez, because you know they were supposed to fight after that, you know. And I said, "Oof, Valdez going into this uh, this Burchell fight after the way he looked against Adam Lopez, that you know that, that didn't look good for him going into it." But you know, I've changed my opinion about it a little bit, um, you know, based on the way he looked against Velez, and also Chris Burchell has not been in a real dogfight in four years, maybe. It's been a long time since, you know, since he fought Francisco Vargas in, in his in the fight where he won the title. I mean, and Vargas was expected to win that fight going into it. Um, and, and he won and it was, a you know, it changed his whole career and everything. But most of his fights have been relatively easy since then. Um, and that's a sign of a really good fighter. I mean, he's an elite level guy now. So and he can box a little better maybe than people give him credit for as well. So he can. He's, you know, he's a banger who can box, you know, maybe a, a puncher boxer, so to speak. But um, yeah, I think it's going to be a fantastic fight. You know, I, I, uh, I'm i looking forward to seeing it. I think this card might be over in time for me to get back to my room to be able to watch that fight live for the most part, or certainly hope so. So, um, but but it's a can't miss fight, though, Chris. I think sure. it's a fight of the year candidate, unquestionably. And uh, And as disciplined as Oscar Valdez is, 
I think once they get in there and they start banging it out, especially because they're Mexican rivals and that they're, I mean, it, there's no way that this is not great television on Saturday night. Well, this is what I was going to say. You make a great point about the impact of Eddie Reynoso. I agree with you. Against Velez, I saw some shades of that. The Canelo-like head movement and a little bit of the defense. Not anywhere near that level, but shades of it in a fight like that. Certainly a lot different than like what I saw with with uh, Valdez against Scott Quig, which was just, you know, rock'em, sock'em robot for, however, for that fight. Um, so I, I think you're seeing a more disciplined fighter under Eddie Reynoso. But when you're in there with a Mexican rival and this guy wants to bang with you, I- I'm just not convinced Valdez isn't going to want to bang right back. And if he does, I don't know if he wins that battle. Like, Burchelt is the bigger, stronger fighter, better puncher. That's, like, I-, I admire the Mexican spirit. I admire the heart, the guts, but a... A toe-to-toe brawl doesn't favor Oscar Valdez. He is going to have to have a little bit more tact to win this fight. Going to have to move a little bit more. Going to have to show some of that defense we saw in the Velez fight. He just can't hang in the pocket and trade with this guy. He's too big, too strong, too talented. All of which Valdez has acknowledged. Valdez has come out and said, like, this guy's number one at 130. I know what he can do. Uh, I hope he uses his head more than his heart in this fight because I don't think it ends well for him if it's all heart. Yeah, I think you're right about that, Chris. And I'll say this. When I spoke to him on the phone recently, he said, um, uh, I don't know if this is a precursor of what to expect on Saturday night, but he said, you know, I- I'm planning to go in there and box and to fight a disciplined fight. And he goes, but you know, like Mike Tyson said, everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the <laughs> face. So so it might be, you know, he, he knows that once he gets touched a couple of times, I mean, everything might go out the window and it, it just might be an all out brawl from there. And I think, uh, yeah, I think we're in for a treat. It might not last as long as it would otherwise, but I think we're in for a treat Saturday night as far as I think. Okay, and, and Keith, this is how like this is how top rank's gonna make their money over the next year, this 130-pound division. I mean, they've got control over a lot of really good guys. Uh I assume at some point we're gonna get Frampton and Herring in the ring uh to fight for that 130-pound title. You mentioned Shakur in the mix, you know, clamoring for his opportunity. You can do a real fun round robin with all of these guys. We talked about Jojo Diaz before. At some point, it, let's say he gets his hand on the 130-pound title the IBF has uh, before the end of next year. Again, uh, he could get into the mix, but there's there's a lot of, like, you know, top ranks trying to make some big fights. There's opportunity to make some really entertaining fights in-house at 130 pounds over the next 18 months. Yeah, you're right, Chris. I, I'll be most interested to see who will fight Shakur Stevenson because I don't think... Um, I don't think he'll fight the winner of the Herring Frampton fight. I think that the winner of that fight, I think will move on to something else, either move up or, you know, Herring has spoken about retiring. So has Frampton. Um, you know, so I, I think Shakur Stevenson will wind up fighting um, the next highest rated contender for the vacant WBO junior lightweight title when the time comes, but he is the, uh, the, the next rated challenger for the winner of the Valdez um, Burchelt fight. Uh, so, Maybe we see a unification. Maybe he wins the WBO title against another guy, and then there eventually is a, a, a unification fight there to be made. I mean, that would be fun. But Shakur Stevenson has not been shy about saying that he would love to fight Miguel Burchelt. So, so if Burchelt wins this fight, you know, maybe he pushes for that because he's ranked high enough and they have the same promoter. He thinks he can win. So, I mean, that, that would be a fun fight too. So, um, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see the way how it plays out over these next, you know, nine months or so. 
Yeah, I think Shakur will find anybody in that weight class, and he's ready to go uh, right now. I do agree with you, too. I think whoever wins, Herring or Frampton, uh, especially if it's Herring, I think Herring goes up to 135 pounds, or I don't think he retires. I think that's just kind of talk you 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 have when you know, you're, you're feeling down about what's going on with your situation. Um, but I think he can move up and have some good fights at 135. Let me ask you real quick, because I didn't get to this at the top of the show. Uh, what happened with Josh Warrington? We don't need to get too deep in the weeds on Warrington, per se, but, like, I don't know, you watch that, like, how do you not stop that fight in the fourth round? Like, what are, what, what are we doing here? Like, Josh Warrington where, was... Where, where, where was the fight? This was over, Josh, the overseas, the, Josh Warrington, oh, yeah, right. where was the fight? There. Yeah. yeah, okay, I see what you're saying. Sorry, yeah. I took me a second to catch on there, but, like, come on, the guy's, like, dead in his feet. Yeah, like, I, I don't, that, I mean... Uh, yeah, look. Not not good for J- Josh Warrington's health for that fight to have entered the fifth round, obviously. But oh, uh, um, and, and he did. I'll give him credit for this. I mean, he's a tough dude. I mean, he came back to make the fight reasonably competitive. But but Lara couldn't miss him. Mauricio Lara could not miss him. You know, and I'm not. And look, Lara is not the best defensive fighter either, and got caught with some clean shots. It's just J- Josh Warrington's not a puncher. I think the lesson to be learned here, maybe more than anything, Chris, uh, other than that, the fight should have been stopped in the fourth round. And I agree with you. Um, beyond that is looking too far ahead and getting too carried away with yourself. You know, go take care of the business at hand. And you see so many guys uh, fall victim to this when they're looking too many. I mean, he's talking about two, three steps ahead. You got to win these fights, man. I mean, and he was in there with a guy who Eddie Hearn had said before the fight. And then after, obviously said that they knew could punch a little bit because um, you know, it had been told to them by other fighters that who had sparred with him that he that he could punch. It's particularly Emmanuel Neverette had had mentioned it multiple times. Who's a frequent sparring partner of Lara, so they knew he was dangerous in that sense. But they thought he was limited. He hadn't beaten anyone at the top level. He had been knocked out in the first round of a fight. Not that Warrington's a huge puncher, but they thought it was a pretty safe fight. And then they gave up their title. They willingly gave up their leverage. And now what? Now you have to go fight this guy again, who might be a terrible style matchup for you, no matter how many times you fight. You're just getting too, you know, you're talking about fighting Kanzu and, and this guy later. And not that the Kanzu fight is the biggest fight in the world either, but, they, you know, they're going two, three steps down the line. And that's what happens sometimes. And, and you know, Warrington's a tough dude, but I mean, his career, you know, fell apart on Saturday. I think he thought he was facing Kanzu in that fight. Kanzu's a volume puncher, but not a heavy puncher. Lara was throwing some big shots at him and landing, like you said, everything that he was throwing at him. I just, I'm, I'm sitting there watching, watching it live, and it's like he, he's kind of just being, like, just sort of allowed to continue in that fourth round when his legs were gone, like completely gone at that point, and then goes back to the corner. Like, if you're his corner, like, live to fight another day, man. Move up to 130, do something else. Like, don't put him through what he eventually went through for the rest of that fight. Like, no, I know. Uh, I, respect, I respect the warrior heart. I respect the warrior heart in a guy, but like, I don't want to hear that. Like, you know, the fighter shouldn't be like, I'm done. The referee should be like, he's done. And the corners should say he is definitely done. Right. And his father's in his corner. So, you know, it's, if someone, anyone cares about him, you would think it would be his father. Yeah. So obviously. So, um, so while it was good for uh, dramatic purposes to see him come back in the fight, Chris, you don't know how much damage that did to him by continuing on for those four or five rounds. In some ways it would have been much better for the fight to end in the fourth round uh, for him there because he, because of how much damage or punishment he took later in the fight. So you hope he's okay physically. Uh, I, he's going to want to fight Mauricio Lara again, and he's contractually uh, entitled to that rematch. So I would suspect that he will take it, take some time, you know, decent amount of time here to recover and then fight him again and see what happens. But I mean, you know, 
they're already saying, well, if he comes back and beats Lara, that you didn't, didn't you, you didn't learn that lesson last week? I mean, like, what? Like, what? I mean, All right, so after he beats Lara this time, he is going to go on to the Kanzu fight. Unbelievable. All right, Keith, enjoy the uh, Adrian Broner show on Saturday. Uh, order yourself up an Ideck burger. I'm sure they've got your name on the menu <laughs> at this point. Uh, how many times you've been there? I'm definitely not making weight this week, that's for sure. So, <laughs> Appreciate the time, Keith. Anytime, Chris. I'll see you soon, bud. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my. Look at that. He is. And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Attention all wrestling aficionados. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. This is Freddie Prince Jr. And I am beyond thrilled to announce that our wrestling extravaganza is back. And joining me once again is the one and only Jeff Dye. Get ready as we highlight the most jaw-dropping matches, dissect the fiercest feuds, and uncover the latest twists and turns in the world of pro wrestling. We're dusting off our legendary side quests and unleashing a barrage of brand new segments that will keep you guys on the edge of your seat like our talks on unsanctioned Thursdays. Freddie, you know we gotta give the people what they want. This season, we have an all-star lineup of special guests who are gonna be gracing our podcast, bringing with them their own unique insights, experiences, and all of that in the world of pro wrestling and beyond. Whether you're a seasoned wrestling veteran or a fresh-faced newcomer, we promise an experience like no other. So buckle up, wrestling fans. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty, Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, joining me now is Bob Arum, the Hall of Fame promoter. He is promoting the biggest show of the weekend, uh, Oscar Valdez, Miguel Burchelt, 130-pound title on the line. It is projected to be, by many, uh, a strong fight of the year candidate between two action fighters, which could lead to even bigger fights for both in the 130-pound division. Down the line, Bob joins me uh, on the show. Bob, this has got to be one you're pretty excited about. You've seen a lot of good fights, but... This one almost feels can't miss. Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and, and it brings back so many memories. Uh, I mean, the one I come back to was that first morales Pereira fight. They had three great fights, but the first one will live in my mind forever. How one guy dominated, then the other guy, and all in the same round. I mean, scoring that fight was really, you had to be a genius to score that fight. Uh, I want to ask you about the fight and what it could mean for the winner, but a couple of things in the news I wanted to get your take on before we jump into that. Uh, this week, the IBF canceled the purse bid for Teofimo Lopez, postponed, I guess, 
the purse bid for Teofimo Lopez until next week. Um, you are the promoter of Teofimo Lopez, the 135-pound uh, champion. Um, this is going to a purse bid because there wasn't an agreement financially there. I mean, how do you feel about this fight going to purse bid? And are you at all concerned that someone else, whether it's Eddie Hearn or MTK, somebody along those lines could bid and win this fight? No, no. I mean, that is certainly the case that that could happen. And if it does, it does. But again, I, am I disappointed? Yes, because in my whole history in boxing, uh, the fighter who is signed to a promoter uh, when a purse bid arises sits down with the promoter and works, uh, tries to work out an arrangement and then gets the opponent at the smallest possible price. Now, that didn't happen here. Uh, the, uh, our fighter, Lopez, uh, through his manager uh, and the other side, uh, colluded together uh, to go out and get the most money from a third party. They didn't do anything illegal. I used the word colluded. That wasn't illegal. But it's not the way I'm used to doing business. So, again, if top rank is outbid on the price bid and it goes someplace else, uh, we have a three and a half years remaining on a contract with Tiafimo, and he'll be back with us. Uh, we're not going to be as collegial with him as we were before. But again, there's some good fights that he could have. This fight, uh, you know, Camboza is, is a, a nice kid and a courageous fighter, but he's not elite. And the fight will probably go off at a 25 or 30 to 1 fight. And if somebody out, and we're going to put a real bid in, and if somebody outbids us, and does the fight, so be it. So be it. Do you look at this situation as being at all similar to one you had in 2019 where Jose Ramirez was offered a lot of money to fight on another platform, um, and he eventually won and came back to fight on ESPN, and he's a big star on ESPN. Are the situations at all similar? No, because there, the zone and Eddie had a fight, a hooker, and they hooker wanted to fight Ramirez. And uh, uh, Hearns went to Ramirez, or his manager, and said, look, I have X dollars. And Ramirez and his manager, the contract does, immediately came to us. And we said, we sat down, and we worked out an arrangement where we would share the money that Eddie was offering, and we allowed Ramirez to fight Hooker because we felt that Ramirez had a good chance to win, and instead of having one belt, he would have two. And we bet that that was the right way to go, and it worked out, right? There wasn't a, a, a bomb going off in, in ESPN, there wasn't 
you don't do this, you, because it wasn't a first bit. We had to agree to have this the way it was, and it worked out, fortunately for us. Completely different. You are in the middle of trying to finalize a deal between Tyson Fury and Anthony Joshua, who was promoted by Eddie Hearn. Um, if somebody else wins the purse bid next week, it very possibly could be Eddie Hearn, who has some money behind him there. Would that complicate things with Fury and Joshua if Eddie came in and won a purse bid for one of your fighters? I think Eddie and the zone will do the right thing. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> you don't want to say what the right thing means? No. That's up to them. Okay. Um, one other fight that got scrapped, you know, that was at least tentatively scheduled for this month was a Jamel Herring-Carl Frampton fight. Uh, we've heard a couple of different versions about why that fight was scrapped. It was reported that there wasn't enough money behind it, whether it was coming from top rank and ESPN. Officially, it's a hand injury for Frampton. From your perspective, why didn't that fight come together? I think because Frampton hurt his hand. He called me as soon as the hand was hurt. We are not the promoters of that fight. Uh, uh, her, uh, what's his name? Frank Warren, um, yeah. Uh, um, Herring signed an advisory contract with MTK. And when MTK said they were going to do that fight, they said, we'll take it off your plate. They said, fine. And uh, Frank Warren is the promoter. And he was prepared to do it on February 27th. Then the hand was hurt. Now I understand the fight will be in Dubai at the end of March. And uh, I mean, that's the way it is. There's no, you know, everybody agreed the amount that ESPN would pay to show that fight on ESPN. That was the amount. That stays the amount. All the other finances, how the fighters get paid, what the costs are, that's not on my plate. I delivered uh, an amount that they asked for uh, to do that fight when it happens on ESPN. Because remember, it would be uh, in the afternoon because it would be evening, whether it's Dubai or uh, the UK, it would be an evening fight, afternoon in the United States, not quite as valuable as a fight that went on in prime time in the United States. So do you, are you having any more involvement now than you were before with this fight now going to Dubai and, and being in part of that? No. I mean, you know, again, uh, I mean, I, I understand there's the Abraham Accords, so now I'm very welcome <laughs> in Dubai. But again, no, no. Okay. Um, just to quickly turn back to Fury and Joshua, I mean, Eddie Hearn has suggested that, you know, negotiations are going pretty well. You've swapped contracts. Uh, from your perspective, where do they stand? You understand. This is a multi, multi-million dollar deal, whether it's a merger of two companies or whatever. So now the lawyers get involved. And, try, and so, I'm a lawyer. So we have our lawyer. Frank has his lawyer. Tyson has his lawyer on our side. Uh, 
Eddie has his lawyer on Matcham's side, Sean Paul. So they sent us a draft. And normally, we then mark it up and send them back a red line copy, which shows the changes we want to make. They send us back another draft, which agrees on some of our changes, disagrees on others. And it goes back and forth, and you gradually get the issues narrowed down. And finally, there's a meeting of the mind. Well, we're moving towards a meeting of the mind. There are still a couple of issues, uh, but I am confident, as is everybody who's working on this, that there will be a meeting of the minds. And once there is, uh, the parties will jointly announce that there is a fight. And then a week or two later, we'll announce where it's going to take place. How close are you to being able to determine the date and location of this fight? I think probably until you do the site arrangement, uh, the date will be determined pretty much based on where the site is going to be and the people involved in putting up the money for the site. They will pretty well determine uh, the, the date. If I would have to guess, it would be uh, sometime in June, uh, maybe even uh, first couple of weeks in July. Remember, the longer we put this off from happening, the better chance we have to have the pandemic under control. How many realistic locations are in play for that fight? Well, I think a lot. I think a lot. I think realistically, I think, you know, the UK is hobbled now because the pandemic is surging there. I mean, you've read what I've read. Uh, The fight doesn't belong particularly in the United States because it's two Brits, even though Tyson Fury has sort of been Americanized. So I would think probably in Asia, uh, more likely in the Mideast, and uh, those are the two areas that, uh, at least as far as I know, that uh, we're all concentrating on. Mm. I mean, the great places in Asia, particularly opening up in Macau and Singapore, uh, where the fight could take place, and they're great places in the Mideast. I mean, Eddie put on uh, a big fight just a little while ago with Joshua and Ruiz in Saudi Arabia. Uh, you were there. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I think the amenities were tremendous. The location is tremendous. It helps with their tourism. Could be that place. I don't know. But again, I would think the Mideast and Asia in all probability. Yeah, it also rained that that night for the first time, I think, in like six years. In, in South- Means that, but it's desert. <laughs> we caught one of the few rainstorms uh, out there in Saudi Arabia. Did it really rain hard? It, it was pretty good. Yeah, it was coming down. We were in uh, raincoats there for most of the night, but still uh, an interesting place to hold a fight. Um, let's talk about Burchelt and Valdez. Burchelt, I think, is the number one guy at 130 pounds. Valdez believes that, that he's the number one guy. Valdez making the move up, you've got kind of a small body of work. You've got the Adam Lopez fight, and you've got the Jason Velez fight. 
Have you seen enough from Burchelt in those, or from Valdez rather, in those two fights to make you believe he's got a shot at beating Miguel Burchelt? No, but I saw the Cervania fight, the Mariaga fight, and more important, the quick fight, to know that you never count Valdez out of a fight. Valdez is a smaller guy, there's no question about it. But I think his boxing intellect far exceeds Burchelt. Burchelt is a powerful guy, a big puncher, but I put Valdez in with a big, big chance. I agree he's a smart uh, a smart fighter, but, I mean, his instinct seems to be to get into firefights. And do, can he afford to get into a firefight with Burchell? I'll leave that up to Eddie Reynoso, <laughs> who, is man- who is training uh, Oscar. And they have a great relationship. And Eddie will, I'm confident, will set Oscar on the right course. Have you seen the impact of Eddie Reynoso in these last couple of fights? Yes. Oscar is, see, Eddie won't take away his combativeness and, you know, the pressure, but he's made him a lot more, he's had him use his innate intelligence in the ring. And Valdez has always been intelligent. But he forgets about it when he gets into a fight. You know, he just wants to throw punches. Uh, but Eddie has got him under control so that you will now see controlled aggression on Valdez's part until he gets angry and starts throwing punches. You have most of the top 130 pounds in the world fighting under top rank. It obviously creates some really big opportunities in that weight class, Shakur Stevenson sort of chomping at the bit as well to get into that mix. Uh, how do you see the next year, 18 months, working out for that that weight class? I'm going to get, you know, hopefully end up with, with a unified champion. I mean, uh, Rochelle, if he wins, wants to fight Shakur. That would be a big pay-per-view fight. Uh, Oscar would fight Shakur, but not as interested as Rochelle is. The winner of Frampton Herring has an obligation to fight Shakur. And so I hope uh, this year to get it all resolved so that we have uh, one champion. Now, over at the IBF, I think it is, uh, where Jojo Diaz had to give up the title, uh, they have uh, this Russian guy that fought him. Rock him off, yep. Draw- Magamov and another guy. And, you know, nobody really knows these people, but they could be in the mix, you know. Uh, Rockamov is uh, Igus Klimas' uh, fighter, and Igus, you know, very close with us. So we'll see. I mean, I'd like to unify the, the 130-pound. I mean, let's see. I mean, uh, uh, the fight that would be absolutely... Unbelievable, you know, because of the style would be Shakur and Burchell. That would, whew, that would, that would, you know, really get all communities in the country involved. I mean, this fight is big and there's a lot of attention, but I mean, certainly there's much more interest in the fight in the Hispanic community here 
than uh, if you had a, a, a Shakur and Brichelt or Shakur and Asuka. I mean, you'd have, uh, you know, the uh, African-American community, you'd have the Hispanics and us white guys who just <laughs> enjoy the fight. Just lastly, Bob, you you have been doing most of your fights in the top-ranked bubble at the MGM Grand uh, without fans. Um, as you look at the landscape now, are you, uh, I mean, are you planning to you know, look at different locations as the country slowly starts to open up? You saw Madison Square Garden is starting to allow some fans into games. We know what's happening in Texas. What's your mindset uh, for the next you know, eight, nine months as far as where to hold fights? If God is willing and the pandemic doesn't throw us a curve, this will be the last fight that we are doing in a bubble without fans. The last fight. From now on, all of our fights will be with a modified bubble with fans because there is tremendous difference doing fights with no spectators, no matter what the acoustics are and everything, we're doing fights with excited spectators. And starting with our next fight, we will be doing fights with spectators. Now that may mean that we can't do fights in certain states because each state has its own rules. And, uh, but we will find places to do our fights uh, from now on, whether it's Nevada or Florida or Texas or whatever, with spectators. As far as we're concerned, I got my second vaccination on on Tuesday. The pandemic is over for me, (laughs) and and I'm out of the bubble. (laughs) I'm glad to hear you got double vaccinated, Bob. That's good news uh, for everybody in boxing. And if you are leaving that uh, that top-ranked bubble, you're going out with a bang. Valdez and Burchelt, potential fight of the year. The undercard starts at 6.30 Eastern time on ESPN+. Main event on ESPN and ESPN Plus as well. Bob, good luck on Saturday. I'm looking forward to uh, to watching. Yeah, let's just do it right. Let's just do it. We're doing it. Let's do it right. Yeah, the you're right. The 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 undercard on ESPN Plus at uh, uh, 6:30 Eastern time, and then at 10 o'clock or a little after, because it's a basketball game, uh, the semifinal, which is a good fight with Gabe Flores. And the main event go on. Everybody should watch because it's going to be great, great fight. But also, it's free. It's free. No paywall. No pay per view. Free to all the great fans out there uh, who'll be watching. All right. Well, you did it better than I did, so I'm glad you uh, you took over there at the end. I uh, appreciate your time, Bob. Good luck. Good to talk to you. All right, that's it for this week's episode. My thanks to my guests. As always, subscribe to the podcast over at Apple Podcasts. Rate, review, you know I appreciate it, and I'll see you next week. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. 
hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants. They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's Freddie Prinze Jr. and Jeff Dye back in the ring. Wrestling with Freddie makes its triumphant return for an electrifying fourth season. Hey, Jeff, are you ready to rumble our way into an all-new season of Wrestling with Freddie? You better believe I have. I've been practicing my body slams, and I'm jacked. All right, don't go injuring yourself now. We'll be highlighting the best stories and matches of the week in wrestling from AEW, WWE, and have one-on-one talks with the best talents in the world of pro wrestling. Listen to Wrestling with Freddie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.